Hi, this is Him We Proclaim with Dr. John Fonville. We're heading into the home stretch of our purity series called Do You Not Know? No doubt you've heard lots of tips and tricks and suggestions on living a sexually pure life, and sadly, so many of those messages still fall short. According to John Fonville, they fall short because they don't go for the heart of the matter, which is our understanding of the gospel. Let's hear the concluding messages in this Do You Not Know series. Here's John with Learning to Flee Sexual Sin According to the Gospel, Part 2. Listen to Ed Clowney in Preaching Christ in all of Scripture. He says, possession marks the covenant relation. Listen, I'm going to show you this from the all of Scripture in here in just a second. But just listen, here's the point. Possession marks the covenant relation. God redeems his people so that he may possess them. That's what Paul's teaching us here. Figuratively speaking, Paul says that the purpose of Christ's death was to purchase his people from enslavement to the law and enslavement to their former manner of life by paying the price to the Father to satisfy God's justice so that God's people can once again belong to him, be possessed by him. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful thing. After, listen, after the resurrection, Jesus told his disciples, wait for the promise of the Father. That is the coming of the Holy Spirit. And by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, God's presence is once again dwelling amongst his people as we saw last week. You are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. God is present among his people. And in the Spirit, Jesus comes and he's present. And the Holy Spirit unites believers to Christ both corporately, 1 Corinthians 3, and individually here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And because we are united to Christ, that means we belong to Christ. We're his purchased possession. God has the title deed to our bodies, and he owns it. You're not your own. Your body is not your own to do with whatever you think you want to do. Because it doesn't belong to you. It is God's purchased possession. And when you begin to awaken to the centrality of redemption And the doctrine of redemption, which is the heart of the gospel, you would never give your body to that which dishonors God, but that which glorifies God, because that is the purpose of Christ's redemption. That's why Paul says in verse 20, he says, so glorify God in your body. What other logical result is there? What other logical implication is there? If God owns it, everything that God owns is to be used to his honor and glory, not to his dishonor and desecration. By virtue of Jesus' redemption by buying us, this author says, quote, Jesus has full property rights over his people. Christ's death purchased them. They have been transferred, listen, from Satan's household to serve in Christ's household. And this brings, listen, improved status, adoption, inheritance. Back in chapter uh, 6, verse 11, the, the, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, you will inherit because you're adopted. Status in Christ's household. A new status that is beyond your imagination. This redemption brings new status. It brings new duties. Flee sexual immorality. Glorify God in your body. Chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Heed the warning of God's law. New duties and increased accountability. Belonging, as we're going to see in Titus in the weeks ahead, belonging to God's people implies 
accountability to Christ through God's ordained offices in the church. There is accountability to being God's people. And so belonging to God implies responsibility, Paul says, not license, not freedom to do whatever you think you want to do just because you feel like doing it. You belong to God and you have a new master, you have a new owner, and you have to obey him. But the good thing about this new master and owner is is not that like just get down there and row your boat, do your duty. No, listen, this new master has washed you, has set you apart, sanctified you, has justified you has destined you for resurrection, united you to Jesus so that all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has done is counted as if you are and you have done. This new master, listen, has come to indwell you and he graciously leads you through love, not fear. He doesn't whip you with the chains and terrors of the law to get you to obey and improve your life through moral improvement because it doesn't work. He inwardly compels you and conforms you by his Holy Spirit to be just like Jesus and he does it through grace. What a wonderful owner. I would love to be in that kind of household, wouldn't you? If that, if that owner says, John, sweep the floor, oh, praise God, I get to sweep the floor? Really? I can do something? Because look at my former life. Look what I've been brought from, verses 9 and 10 of chapter 6. What a privilege. What a joy. And so the implication is this, is that believers are no longer to live by their self-centered desires, self-indulgence, bodily passions, using these theological justifications to justify ungodly living. You don't just, if when the gospel is central and paramount in your life, you don't use theology to justify immorality. You, you use your theology, the gospel, Christ has bought me, to use it to be compelled to live to the glory of God. This is what Paul says, so glorify God in your body. In a different context, in Romans chapter 14, verses 7 through 8, Paul says, none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself, for if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, guess what? We are the Lord's. We are the Lord's. We are God's purchased possession. We are his people. And a self-consciously centered gospel in your life will compel you to live for the Lord and not yourself. You see this. Do you begin to see now why if you don't understand doctrine, i.e. gospel, there is no sanctification? It's impossible. Because there's nothing, there's no reality by which the Holy Spirit has to work in your life to lead you to obey. The Holy Spirit does not work in a vacuum, and he does not work through moralistic lectures. He works through the gospel. Now, the temple imagery was not only rich to the Corinthians, but it was exceedingly rich to the Apostle Paul. The slavery image was also not just rich to the Corinthians, but the slavery image was exceedingly rich to the Apostle Paul, who was Jewish. The Corinthians, Gentiles, Paul, expert in the law, Pharisee of Pharisees, Jew, he got the Old Testament. He knew what it was about. 
And Paul's understanding of Christ's work of redemption, just as the temple imagery, now the redemption imagery is rooted in the Old Testament. And let me very quickly, like I did last week, the notes will be up tomorrow, so quit taking notes and just listen. I want you to see how Christ fulfills this imagery. Because Christ is on every page, right? Luke 24, he's on every page. Let me show you how he's on every page through redemption. It's been suggested that Paul may have an allusion to Hosea chapter 3 here when he's talking about being bought. And if you go back in Hosea chapter 3, in Hosea chapter 3, Hosea uses a Hebrew word which is translated bought. And Hosea is buying his wife, Gomer, out of slavery. And Hosea's wife, Gomer, was living as an adulteress in a life of sexual immorality. And God tells the prophet Hosea, go buy your wife out of slavery. Go purchase her out from her sexually immoral lifestyle so that she can belong to you in a lifelong, loving, monogamous relationship called marriage. And Hosea's marriage is a depiction of Israel's relationship with the Lord. The Lord pursues Israel, the adulteress. And the Lord is using Hosea to call Israel back because Israel was to be his purchased possession. And so Hosea is called to retrieve his adulterous wife so that Israel can have a living picture that God still loves his people and wants them back so he can possess them for himself. Beautiful gospel picture in the book of Hosea. Sometime we'll go through the book of Hosea. But in the same way, Paul is using this redemption imagery from the Old Testament, and he's saying that the Corinthians are bought out of bondage to their sexually licentious lifestyle in order to belong to God and to live a life that that glorifies God rather than dishonors God. And that's where this imagery is coming from. Second, we also see this redemption imagery fulfilled in Christ saving, in God's great saving acts called the Exodus. Anytime you see New Testament authors referring to Christ redeeming, Christ ransoming, Christ buying, think Exodus. Because that's where it comes from. By his redemption, Christ in Ezekiel 36, 28, by his redemption on the cross, Christ is fulfilling God's covenant promise that he made to Abraham and to all the ones after because he made first a promise to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, 15, you shall be my people and I will be your God. You'll belong to me and I'll belong to you. I'll possess you. And Christ's saving act of redemption on the, cro- on the cross recalls the Exodus, God's great act of redeeming his people out of slavery in Egypt. Listen to Christopher Wright in his book, The Mission of God. He says this. He says, if you had asked a devout Israelite in the Old Testament period, are you redeemed? The answer would have been a most definite yes. And if you ask, how do you know? You would have been taken aside to sit down somewhere while your friend recounted a long and exciting story. And the story would be of the Exodus. For indeed, it is the Exodus that proved the primary model of God's idea of redemption, buying back. 
Not just in the Old Testament, but even in the New, where it is used of one of the keys to understanding the meaning of the cross of Christ. Do you hear that? Paul is pointing us here in 1 Corinthians 6 to the heart of the gospel. He's pointing us to one of the keys to understanding the meaning of the cross of Christ. So that when Paul and the other New Testament writers refer to Jesus as our redemption, the Old Testament story they had in mind was the exodus. God, through saving action, coming to his people because he has steadfast love, which is covenant faithfulness, to redeem his people from slavery and bondage so that they can belong to him. Let me just give you a couple of examples from the Old Testament to show you where this comes from. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 5, God through Moses is speaking to the people, and he says in verse 5, I have remembered my covenant with Abraham. When God makes a promise, he never forgets it. He always performs it. He's the promise-keeping and performing God. Steadfast love equals covenant faithfulness. And when you see steadfast love in the Old Testament, think covenant faithfulness. God made a promise. He'll keep it. He'll perform it. That's grace. That's the gospel in the Old Testament. And so God remembers his covenant to Abraham, verse 5. Therefore, listen to what he instructs Moses. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. And listen to verse 7. I will take you to be my people. I'll possess you, and I will be your God And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore covenantal faithfulness to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it to you for a possession because I am the Lord. That's powerful. Clearly, possession marks the covenant relation. God's people are redeemed in order to belong to God in God's dwelling place, the promised land where God has promised to dwell with his people. In Exodus chapter 15, Moses and the people of Israel are singing a song of praise that spontaneously erupted in their hearts in response to God's great deliverance from Pharaoh's army. And the theology that that drives their heart of response in their song is deeply profound, which shows you if the gospel is not in your heart, there's nothing profoundly responsive to give back to God. So if you find yourself in church not singing, you might want to ask yourself this first question, how much gospel is filling my heart? Because you read Exodus 15 and you see loads of gospel filling God's people's hearts for his great act of redemption. Listen to what they sing in verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love, your chesed, your covenant faithfulness, the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode, by your strength. They didn't do it. To your holy abode, to the place where you dwell. Listen, God's redemption was based on his steadfast love, his promise to Abraham. And the reason he made a promise to Abraham is because he first made a promise to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. He's the God of promise and performance. That is his grace. That is his strength. That is his steadfastness. 
And listen, in redemption, God always takes the initiative because of his steadfast love. He didn't redeem Israel because they deserved it. He redeemed Israel because he was faithful to his promise. Now listen, secondly, note in this passage that the purpose for his redemption was to guide his people to his holy abode. To his holy abode. Listen to this. God's dwelling place is his holy abode. What is that? It was either Canaan, the promised land, or, listen, the hill of Jerusalem where the temple would be built. And we saw that last week. Where is God's dwelling place? Garden of Eden, the tabernacle, the promised land, the temple. And where does all of this come to a fruition in as we saw last week? Well, we saw that God acts to possess his people. In Exodus 19.4, God speaks to Moses, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings, listen, and brought you to myself. God acts to redeem in order to possess his people. All of these acts of redemption, of salvation, point forward to the coming of Christ, who Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20 is the fulfillment of all of God's saving action, where it says all the promises of God find their yes in him. Just as God redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt to belong to him, to bring them to himself, so Jesus has died on the cross to purchase us, to buy us, to redeem us, to belong to him, and now he owns us. We are his purchased possession. Listen to this in the New Testament, how the New Testament writers pick up on this covenant language from the Old Testament and apply it all to Jesus, to the church. Matthew chapter 1, Matthew opens up with this startling announcement to a Jewish audience, and he says, Jesus, which means Yahweh says, which is a covenantal name of God in the Old Testament, applied to Jesus, he is present with his people to, Matthew 1.21, to save his people from their sins. The great deliverer of Exodus, the great pursuer of Hosea is Jesus, Yahweh says, and he's come to save their people, his people from their sins. Matthew 1, 21, astounding. Matthew says that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, present in saving action among his people. Just as you read the book of Exodus, over and over and over in the book of Exodus, God's presence is always seen in saving action. The pillar of fire, the cloud. Everywhere he goes, his presence is with the people, saving them, rescuing them. And Matthew says, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, present in saving action among his people. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 in the book that we're studying. Paul says that Christ has become to us wisdom from God. Christ is the wise man. He fulfills the office of wise man from the Old Testament. If you've ever wondered, where is the gospel in the book of Proverbs, the Song of Solomon, all the wisdom literature? It's right here, Jesus. He's the only one who has ever lived the perfectly wise life, which is moral conformity to the will of God, the law of God. That's wisdom. Wisdom is not this practical advice, read a proverb every day, you'll be more successful in your job. It's not what the book of Proverbs is about in Scripture. Jesus has become to us wisdom from God. He fulfills the office of the wise man of the Old Testament. It's all about him. 
Jesus has become to us righteousness and sanctification and, listen, redemption. There it is. It's right there. Listen to Titus 2, verse 14, which we'll come to shortly. Jesus gave himself to redeem us. Sound familiar? To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Why? So that they'll be zealous, passionate to do good works, responsibility. There it is. Here's the fulfillment. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But this is all from the Old Testament. You're a chosen race. Well, I thought Israel was. Well, you're Israel. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. Well, I thought the Levites. No, you are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, the church. You are a people for his own possession. God owns you because Jesus purchased you. Why are we purchased and owned by God? Listen, so that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness, that's redemptive, into his marvelous light. That's the promised land. That's the place of God's dwelling. That's the presence of God amongst his people. Clearly, the purpose of God's acts of redemption is to possess his people and for his people to be in submission to the one who has redeemed him, not out of duty, but listen, out of pure gratitude. Pure gratitude. Possession implies responsibility and not license. And Paul's point, and here in, in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20, is to tell us that because Christ has bought us, we have become his rightful possession. And so here's how we can paraphrase it. By virtue of his death, Christ purchased you for God, which means that your bodies are included in this purchase. And so you're not your own. Your bodies are now God's possession by right of divine purchase. Therefore, the implication is you are not free to engage in unrestrained sexual license. God owns you. Because you belong to him body and soul, and because you have this privileged status of a heavenly father now who serves you in grace, your body is a sacred temple of the Holy Spirit, and you're to be zealous to carry out your father's will and purpose for your life, which is flee, avoid, keep away from all sexual immorality, and glorify God in your body. That's what Paul's arguing here. So your body is God's lawful possession by a double right, habitation and redemption. And so the only logical conclusion is this. You stay away from everything that is impure, and you use your body to do everything that honors him glorifies him. So let me ask you a couple questions as we finish. Do you know that you are God's temple? Do you know this? Do you know that the Holy Spirit indwells you and you are God's habitation? That the presence of God is in you, practicing, learning to practice. We'll come back to this next week. Learning to practice the presence of God comes to a self-conscious acknowledgement of the gospel and its implications for your life. Do you know that your body is not your own? You don't own your body. 
You don't have the freedom to do whatever you want to. You're possessed by God. God has the title deed to your body. You don't have that. Jesus has paid the ultimate price in satisfying the judgment and justice of God and, and the law's requirements. And because of this, your body is God's purchased property and you can't do whatever you desire anymore. You have to live in submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Do you live with this self-conscious acknowledgement that God owns you? Do you wake up every single morning saying, I am the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. I'm a sacred temple purchased by divine right through the redemption of Jesus Christ, who is my only one in sacrifice for my sin. I want to do everything today to honor him with my body and my spirit. Is that how you think? Paul's saying, if you want to pursue sexual purity, that is exactly how you begin to live your life as a Christian to keep the gospel paramount, gospel-driven sanctification. Thanks, John. The message you just heard is called Learning to Flee Sexual Sin According to the Gospel, Part 2. More from the series coming up next time. The mission of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. And it's our prayer that your heart will be filled with joy and a clear understanding of the gospel and God's word. If you want to hear a past broadcast, check out our podcast in iTunes or download our app. Just search for Dr. John Fonville in iTunes or Google Play. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to visit Pastor John's church in Jacksonville, Florida, you're always welcome. You can find out more at ParamountChurch.com. I'm Josh Montez. Thanks for listening and join us next time.